Hey everyone, this is Erica Lucas, your host and founding member of VAST, an organization connecting women across industries, regions, and career levels, so that together we can expedite the pipeline of more women in positions of power and influence. Welcome to another episode of the Vester Podcast, where we explore the invisible barriers holding women back in the workplace and share stories of women building power collectively. What's your biggest pet peeve? Women, and, and, and it is mostly women, not being paid what we should be paid in the nonprofit sector. I also think nonprofits and people who support them should also look at inclusion and diversity across their entire organization, not just their board. Um, if you're hosting events where the main ticket is $450 or above, are you really being inclusive to people? It's scary as a newer nonprofit to say no because you're thinking, oh, well, I have another opportunity. Well, I have another chance for a funding opportunity to come in and, and be able to bring in that resource for the organization that we need to keep staff on board, to keep things moving and shaking. But we cannot keep letting people pigeonhole us or we'll never be able to get out of that pattern of being treated lesser than. In this episode, VAS member Shannon Cooper, Director of Philanthropic Services at BWF, Carol Herrick, Executive Director at the Oklahoma City Dodgers Foundation, as well as Vanessa Morrison, CEO at Open Design Collective, and Anna Wake Rose, Policy Director at the National Indian Health Board, share learnings and advocate for better ways to advance nonprofit missions while also supporting leaders in the space. Brought to you by Instrumental, helping grant professionals scale their fundraising strategy with their single tool for grant prospecting, tracking, and management. Get personalized grant recommendations, reminders for upcoming deadlines, and conduct all of your research in one place. Try it free for 14 days, then go to the special link included in our show notes to save $50 off your first month. To access our guest's full bio and for show notes, go to www.vesther.co forward slash podcast. This recording was part of a more intimate coaching session with best members and has been repurposed to accommodate this episode. I'm wondering how long each of you have been in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector and what made you get into the profession? Yes, well, good morning, everyone. And thank you so much, Shannon and Erica and Gabby for creating today's conversation, this wonderful space that you all always cultivate for us to come together and just have real conversation and welcome new members. I see a lot of familiar faces, a lot of new faces. Welcome, welcome. This is the best group ever. Um, but yeah, I've been in the nonprofit sector for about 15 years now. I cannot believe I can say that. Um, I've had various different roles in the sector. My background is primarily in public health and social services. And so I really don't feel like I made a conscious decision to get into the nonprofit sector. Honestly, I just worked for causes that I cared about and just so happened that a lot of the causes that I was working for were structured as nonprofit entities. And I really feel like in the state of Oklahoma, especially here, that a lot of organizations that are community facing or doing this type of community building crisis intervention type of work have a pressure to be a nonprofit organization to be structured that way for funding, for resources, and for sustainability purposes, even when it's not feasible to do. And so I, I don't think I 
chose to be in the nonprofit sector. I think the nonprofit sector chose me. And I've just been working in this field ever since. And even with my own firm, Open Design Collective, one of the biggest motivating factors in structuring the organization that way was because we knew that if we were not structured as a nonprofit, that we would not even be able to work on some of the projects that were so meaningful and aligned with our values. So I don't know if anyone else can relate to that, um, but I do think there's a lot of pressure and stigma here in Oklahoma to have to be structured as a nonprofit, to be trusted, to do community-based work, even when financially and from a feasibility perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So similar to Vanessa, hi, uh, I am Anawake Rose. I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. I'm also of Muskogee Creek descent. I am currently in Tulsa, uh, but have lived and done most of my professional career in Washington, D.C., um, doing a variety of jobs. And I didn't realize that anything was possible other than nonprofit. When you're raised in Indian country, you're raised to know that you're going to be working with tribes and working with our our tribal organizations. And so uh, most of those end up being nonprofits or you work directly for our governments. So like Vanessa, it was... um, I didn't know it was an option, right? Like it's just what we all do. Most of us are born into some sort of work doing policy work when you're in Indian country. I think what's been interesting for me is I've gotten to know Erica in this space because everyone I've ever known has done nonprofit work, right? All of the women I know, all of the people I know, it's the community that I've created and I have and I cultivate around me because we have similar and shared experiences with funders or whatnot. Um, But as I've gotten to know Erica and understood a little bit about um, for-profit space and the founders really understanding how similar our organizations are in the way that we grow and our reliance on others to help us build our careers. And so I've really enjoyed learning uh, the for-profit space and how similar it is. And so I think there are these really intentional boundaries that are set up between our organizations that I'm excited to see sort of break down as we think across the board how women are struggling in industries uh, nationwide. Uh, But that's a short answer to say I'm old and I've been doing this a long time, Shannon. Great. Carol? Well, I am also old, but um, have not been doing this as long. I've been doing this about 14 years. Uh, I had to add up the years this morning just so I could accurately answer this because it feels some days a lot longer than that, to be honest. Um, but I I started, um, I'm also like our panelists in as much as I don't think I chose this intentionally. This life kind of chose me. Um, Started working for a Department of Army, which is, I think, one of the largest social organizations in the country, and um, moved over to um, military and veteran nonprofits just as a way to um, really grow as a professional and um, widen widen the group that I was working with and really solve problems. Um, Definitely um, have a background as a military spouse as well. So didn't just want to, um, you know, help at, at the army level or department of army level, but wanted to really help military families across all branches of service. And from there just grew to love the sector. What is it that really motivates you to be in the sector? What do you love the most? And, and what do you, what's your biggest pet peeve? And it has to be your biggest one, not the whole list. Um, so what motivates me the most is knowing that, and, and actually it's a requirement. You know, if I, if I can't answer this question, then I really rethink what I'm doing. Um, I work a lot. 
I work a lot of hours. I work over, I'm going to be working over the holidays uh, just because of the nature of the, the work that I do. But um, if I cannot say at the end of the day that what I'm doing makes my nieces and my daughters and my community members' lives better, then I'm not going to do it. And I do know, and I can answer that wholeheartedly, that every single thing that I do every day, everything that I do is making an impact on my family and my seven generations down. Um, I'm not sure I could say that I'm for profit, right? Maybe, maybe there's some, but right. Like I, I know that that's what I'm doing. Ah, biggest pet peeve. So many right now. Okay. So I'm, I've, I'm really struggling with them, but I'm, I will say right now, my biggest pet peeve are women and, and, and it is mostly women not being paid what we should be paid in the nonprofit sector. And that happens for a variety of reasons, but our talent is undervalued for what we do. Um, extraordinarily, it's, uh, it's it's sickening when you go in and you start looking at 990s and you look at, you know, the comparisons, people of color are paid dramatically less as well. Um, I think that goes back to issue, right? It goes back to issues of founders. It goes back to too many nonprofits. It goes back to this belief that working nonprofit means that we're charity and we're, we're going to do it because, you know, because we want our, our seven generations to be better. But right now that's my current big pet peeve is, uh, the lack of pay and the belief that we need to be doing this work for free. I feel that. Vanessa? I would say in this space that I'm in, so with Open Design Collective, I, I think Erica mentioned in the introduction that we support the social and spatial needs of Black and marginalized communities. And working in the public health sector for so many years and seeing so many individuals struggle with adversity in our state from homeless, homelessness, substance abuse, mental health, et cetera, you name it, it just became really exhausting to me to feel like I was reacting to a lot of these crises and not being more on the prevention side. And so I love how in this work of building, designing and developing the physical spaces, the backdrop and where all these experiences are happening and, and are influencing everyday people's quality of life. It feels so fulfilling to me to be in this world because I feel like I'm helping be preventative and not just constantly reacting to system issues and gaps and crises that we absolutely need real-time reaction to and we need crisis services, but we also need people who are working to build better communities so people don't have to struggle as much as they are in present day. And so I love being in this work um, and it, it's been very fulfilling for me in those ways. And I have to agree um, when Anna Wake on the pay, I think that is a huge inequity in the nonprofit sector. Um, especially for women of color. I cannot tell you how many roles and positions I've worked in and I was underpaid, overworked, undervalued, disrespected, et cetera, and expected to show up in the workplace every single day and perform at an unnatural level and scale. Um, as a matter of fact, I was reading an article a few weeks ago about how people of color, women of color are fleeing the workplace environment and the nonprofit sector are starting their own businesses because of the inequities and injustices that they're experiencing in these environments. And that's a big reason why I started Open Design Collective and I've started different organizations because I was so tired of being treated less than in a lot of these environments where we're supposed to be supporting justice in our community, but there's so many injustices in our very institution. So um, 
totally echo and amplify Anna Lake's comments on the inequities as it relates to pay, as it relates to treat how we treat each other, how it relates to how we value different expertise and perspectives and diversity in the workplace. And I think that is a huge issue in the nonprofit sector. There's a lot of folks working to change that and change that landscape, but we still have a lot of work to do. I'd like to dig into some of what y'all have said further. Anna Wake, let's start with you. I especially during this holiday season, you know, a lot of criticism around philanthropy is around the perceived and real power dynamics um, between the charity and the receiver. Um, and I'm wondering what your experience with that is and how you see that. So I, I've actually talked about this question with a number of folks that I know in the field because it's it's really bothered me, right? My immediate gut reaction is what I, probably all of us are, right? Like that immediate gut reaction. But at the end of the day, it's the funder's money and they can kind of decide where they want to spend it. But I'm in, you know, I'm in Indian country and we tell stories. So y'all bear with me for a story. Um, one of the organizations I worked with in the past was the National Indian Education Association, a DC-based organization that, you know, worked across the U.S., And uh, one of our large funders was the Gates Foundation. And Gates does a number of things. um, But at at the time, they were going through a strategic plan. And if you're in the nonprofit space, that's the worst thing you want to hear from a funder, that they're going through a strategic plan, because God only knows what they're going to come out with at the end of the day, right? You, You have been funded from them for like 10 years, and now all of a sudden they are going through a strategic plan, and they've decided they they don't want to work on equity anymore. They want to plant trees, and you're like, holy hell, you know, there goes the million dollars I have. There's no uh, notification, no anything. Well, the Gates Foundation decided that they were going to focus on um, Black people and they were going to focus on Brown people. And this was the way I was told about it. And we didn't fall into any one of those places. And so we had to fall into the poor people bucket. And I was like, but not all of Indian country is poor, right? Like that's the perception. But how are we going to fit in that? And they're like, you got to be one of those buckets of people. And I was like, "Mm." um. We have to fit into their mold of being defined, right? And that is the biggest power dynamic, which leads nonprofits very easily to be on this mission creep, right, of trying to chase wherever those dollars are so that we can maintain ourselves and keep ourselves open and keep payroll. Well, if we all do that, right, then we know what that ultimately ends to. And we we do what Vanessa was talking about, right? We're doing 16 jobs because they're way stretched in our capacity and we can't meet all of those pieces, but then you are, as the organization, if you don't chase and take after that money, then you're potentially closing down. So there's clearly that power dynamic. Um, but that then I think we can and we can blame the funders all day long for the strategic plan and not including um, uh, lived experience right within as they're thinking about what their new strategic plan is not being reactive to the moment. You know, when Trump took over all of the nonprofit or all the big foundations went what are we going to do? You know, and they started regrouping and refocusing to try to address all the stuff that Trump was closing down. Um, so foundations being focused on long-term, being focused on building the capacity of the organizations, being focused on infrastructure, right? Not these short-term, which Oklahoma funders are so about. We only want to give one year. We don't want to think about long-term. We don't want to build capacity, right? Like we want you to continue to do what we want you to do all the time. And you're going to come back and ask us and beg us for money every year. Uh, that's one problem. But I think nonprofit sector, we all need to sit down as a group because I think we have collective power, 
right, as a, as a group of people. And if we all sat down together at the same table and went to some of these foundations and said, listen, you know, we need a 3% COLA every year because there's just no way we can afford our cost of living. We understand that we you think that this is trendy and we're going to work collectively as a group to address this instead of you starting a new nonprofit, right, to address this one on one piece and draining all of our funding. But we have, because of our scarcity mindset, we're all terrified to sit at the table and work together because somebody might get that grant instead of us. So we're, we have to honestly think bolder and think bigger than the foundations are. We need to be planning as we're doing our strategic plans. Who are we bringing at the table that's doing this work? Um, we need to be driving that discord instead of right foundations. And, but that's really scary to think about. So and then we have to get our boards behind it as well. Vanessa, I'd like for you to dig a little deeper into that. So if we go beyond the funders, let's talk about some of the things that you touched about around just the institutional structure of the nonprofits themselves. And what kind of role do they play when it comes to things like inclusive work environment and, you know, creating competition in the economic ecosystem itself um, between each other for funding, duplicating efforts, those kinds of challenges within nonprofits. Yes, I feel like Anna Wade took the words out of my mouth. Um, I cannot agree with you even further on all of your comments about uh, nonprofits ourselves being more collaborative, thinking more broadly and strategically about a collective ask versus just the scarcity and competition. I do believe that philanthropy plays a role in creating those conditions. And we can't blame it all on the funders, but there is a landscape that we're all working and living and coexisting in that kind of forces us sometimes, I think, to treat each other that way. But we have to resist that. We have to think beyond that and think more collectively. Um, just in my experience, I feel like there is a lot of competition, a lot of scarcity, a lot of insecurity, people feeling threatened by other people's missions, even when the missions are not the same or doing the same services. I've seen a lot of people uh, get kind of ugly and, and feel like they have to be super competitive with each other versus thinking about more broadly, how do we thrive individually as our organizations, but also collectively, how do we be more strategic to Anowitz's point on asking funders for a more collective ask and a strategic ask that can really help holistically support the communities that we're all working to build up and strengthen and help be successful. You know, we all play a role. We all bring a unique skill set and a unique perspective that's needed. We are in in Oklahoma, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but we consistently rank at the top three or six in every adversity in the country. There is so much need here um, and, and there's not enough people. There's not enough capacity to fit the need. So we are all needed in this ecosystem of change. We all bring in a, in a great value and expertise and a skill set. And instead of competing with one another or feeling threatened by one another, how do we come together and be more collaborative and do more coalition building so we can approach funders and do more strategic asks versus just one siloed ask when we can do these services in this program for so many years, but guess what? We need 10 other partners involved and engaged, and we're not only going to be able to go so far because we only thought about our own individual mission. So um, yes, I think the collective collaboration is still a struggle. I see funders really moving in a direction of encouraging people to be more collaborative, but I still see a lot of issues and challenges 
internally amongst nonprofits and being able to do that and not feel threatened or feel like someone's taking from them if they work with someone else. Can I add to that real quick, Shannon, because Vanessa is exactly right. You know, that some of the, the larger foundations are, are asking us to do that, but they're not compensating us to do it, right? They're saying here, take $100,000, uh, do this big program that we've asked you to do. And also, I want you to work with six other nonprofits at the table, and that's going to take you probably 10 hours a week to be able to do that. But I want you to do that on your own. Right, that should come out of the less than 10% indirect cost rate that I'm going to be providing you and not compensating you for it. So, I mean, it's all about paying us for the work that you're wanting us to do. And essentially, right, asking us to sit at the table and collaborate from a founder's perspective is asking us to do their work for them, right? Because they really want to know from us. And so we're we're essentially in, in that respect, when the founders are asking us to do it, we become a think tank for them right? About what to do next, what happens on the next grant, what happens on the next cycle. I feel a way about that. Absolutely. I think you're right. And I'm fascinated, Carol, with your background in the military, (laughs) which is notorious for having challenges working together, as well as now in a competitive sports environment, right? And so I'm wondering if you could share some of your kind of lessons learned in bringing people together and where you see, you know, people making um, progress in working together um, to create systematic change. I agree with what the panelists have said so far. It's been my observation that a lot of um, nonprofits are competitive and do have that scarcity mindset because they're all struggling for um, funding and resources. But what I would like to highlight is um, some of the successes I have seen where we have built some coalitions to really tackle problems together. And one of the ones that um, I learned very early in my career with nonprofits was one here in Lawton Fort Sill, where we started a soldier family uh, coalition of all agencies that were working together from the army side to the nonprofit profit sector. And we would literally take a a situation or a family, go around the table and say, how can you best support this family? And we would come up with a treatment plan, for lack of a better way to explain it, where we helped um, collectively. And I think that that taught me very early on that that it's always better to build a big table and to really get folks together. And so when I came to the Dodgers, that's one of the things I've set out to do. I think we're all really good at um, building relationships with funders or with our board or our volunteer corps or whatever resources we're working with. But I don't know that we've always invested in relationships with um, other nonprofits that maybe work in the same space or work in different spaces. And so um, it's been really fun for me to build that kind of network at the Dodgers and think through um, who do I, who do I want to work with? Um, How do we uh, want to um, tackle this problem that we're seeing in our community together? And so that's been really fun and I recommend it. It's my favorite thing to do of my day to day. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that is the road ahead. I'd like to shift a little bit to future focused. Um, 
One of the exciting things I'm seeing um, is that we're beginning to see an industry shift when it comes to the labor source availability and sustainability as people who've traditionally held the leadership positions begin to retire and move out and new people move in. I'm wondering, Honor Wake, especially in D.C., where even Congress is seeing that shift in leadership, um, if you're seeing this across the nonprofit sector and what your thoughts are related to the challenges and opportunities with that shift. So um, first, let's start with Congress, the Supreme Court, like somehow it's become geriatric daycare up there. And I, I have no idea like what's going on. I'm, I'm it's, it's just a thing. No one should be in office till they die. Like it's just, we need, we need an age limit, like 87, maybe, I don't know. So that's my side for that. Uh, so yes, right. I mean, uh, and I'll take myself at, at, for example of this. I keep, I keep a leadership mantra on my thing, and it is, um, who am I leading? Oh, I'm sorry, who am I making room for at the table right now? And that's because it's some sometime I want to retire, and I take really seriously my role of making sure that everyone around me has the skill sets and the abilities to be able to do that. Right? Um, what's the what's all the training I didn't get? <laughs> that I want to make sure others have, right? What is what does that management look like? Um, but let's be really honest, right? I just lost half of my 401k over the last few years. So I'm going to be working a little bit longer than I thought that I would, unless I want to be eating tuna every day, um, which I'm not really a tuna fan. So that's a problem, at least canned. Uh, so you know, nonprofits are being led by uh, the same voices. And, and a lot of those were created by, because let's be honest, right? Foundations, large foundations were created by really, really wealthy people who did really, really terrible things. And they were trying to clean up their image, right? Rockefellers, Fords, right? All of those folks, they did really terrible things. And to buy their way into society, they started their own little foundations. And now it's become their little fiefdom. Some are a little different, right? Like the Kellogg folks um, or the Hershey folks, right? Who have directed their money towards certain things. Then it ends up becoming a family run business. Their foundations, right? Their great, great grandsons are now sitting on it. And there are the boards, look at the Walton Foundation, right? And they're still deciding what to do. Um, because of that, the makeup of the, the top of those foundations, as well as their boards, do not look like the communities in which they serve or say that they're serving and reflect. And so when they go through their strategic planning, they're, uh, <laughs> they, unless they bring in folks with lived experience, they have absolutely no idea what's going on on the ground. So we then end up, again, being uh, reflective of what they think to be a need within the community when they've lived on 10, you know, quazillion dollars their entire lives and have no idea what's really going on. But to get those changes, we need people to move out, right? And that's happening in the nonprofit space. So foundations had that. And then nonprofits ended up some of the largest nonprofits. Let's look at the Red Cross. Let's look at others were founded by incredibly wealthy women who got bored and needed something to do. And they sat around and they founded these nonprofits to use their friends' money from the Rockefellers to dole out to where they wanted it. And that's continued to be that space, right? Really wealthy individuals who uh, maybe don't need to work and they're kind of working for fun and they sit around and they do this, which leads to some of the things Vanessa was talking about too, right? Uh, the de desperate need for anti-racism work that's happening and needs to go on within our organizations because it just continues to perpetuate this really interesting cycle of power um, within our work. 
So we need to be thinking about what that new generation of leaders looks like within our space. And the folks that should be leading our organization should be the uh, people that are actually being serviced, right? And we're thinking about within the organizations. And I think some are going through that shift, right? As some EDs and CEOs retire, but it's not happening quicker enough or as quick as we really need it to be. Um, But I think that's happening in the for-profit space as well. Boomers aren't leaving. We all know this. Boomers are staying longer and longer and longer. So then there's the Gen Xers, you know, we're just silently waiting. We'll probably have to retire before the boomers retire. And then, you know, that leaves it to millennials. Um, And I mean, that's, God, that's 20 years from now, maybe. And that's, that's not fast enough. So I would suggest, right, as we're thinking about this power shift and this power dynamic, one of the things that everyone in this space can do is start looking for opportunities to be on a board. Because sometimes if we we have an opportunity to get on a board, we can work on shifting the dynamics of who that next CEO will be. We can be thinking about when's the last time that ED had a 360 review? Is this organization really... Um, mirroring the communities in which we're trying to serve and reflect. And so as a governance body, we might have an opportunity to do that. And if you as nonprofit leaders have not sat on a board and been on that other side, I really highly encourage you to do that. It will make you a better leader as you're learning how to govern through another perspective and lens um, and opens up a completely different board. So I think that we're having um, really clear power dynamics that sit at the top right, of the big nonprofits, not being reflective of the communities we serve, but there's some uh, generational issues that are happening. And I think prohibiting folks from retiring and cycling through the way that we need to. And the best way I think that we can start working on that change, because we also have to be really clear on nonprofits. You know, I, I have I have a staff of 50 where I'm at um, in, in my my little shop. Unless someone quits, I don't have any more jobs because that's all the funding I have. So the opportunity to move up is incredibly limited. So we need people to leave so more people can come in. So I think as we need to be thinking about government structures in a little bit different ways to encourage a rotation of talent. Any last thoughts, final thoughts around something you'd like to see changed or what you want to convey as a takeaway for VEST members? Yes, you know, there's so many challenges as you all can relate to and have heard on this discussion call today. And there there could be a whole multiple conversations and hours and hours on end about all of the challenges that are happening in this sector. But I'm really hopeful because I do see a lot of cultural shifts in philanthropy And even here locally, I'm seeing a lot of foundations reckon with these inequities and this exclusion that has historically been these patterns in the nonprofit sector and really trying to think broadly about how do we be better partners, not just a funder, but a partner in working with nonprofits to better support communities. And I have actually been a part of this wonderful work um, that's a part of a group called Generous Together. And we're a collective of practitioners, Black Black practitioners who are leading nonprofits in the city, working with funders to work through conversations on how funders can be more equitable and inclusive in their funding work and their efforts. And it's been a year of tough conversations, relationship building, and just really learning from each other's different perspectives and creating an environment where we have access to these relationships to have these discussions, which I think has been such a beautiful model that is pushing a lot of change in the community. And so um, I, I do not think all funders practice the same way. I know there's 
multiple here in Oklahoma that are wanting to ship, wanting to do things different. And that brings me a lot of hope. And there's resources emerging to help people figure out and walk through those journeys together. And Generous Together is one of those groups that is being a thought leader in that space. So if anyone is interested in learning on that type of work and what the group has been up to, you can go to I think saloon.com um, and learn more about that work and how we're really trying to move into this direction of relationship building, access to relationships and true partnership and funding and not just a funder receiver dynamic. And I, you know, I, in a way, it's just been preaching on this whole entire call and I just appreciate everything you've been saying, but I just wanted to share a really brief story about an experience I had with the funder not too long ago who actually invited me to apply for a grant. And this is for another organization called Cut It Forward that supports the ethnic hair and skin care needs of Black foster and adoptive youth and people who are taking care of those children. And they invited us to apply. And so we knew that wasn't a guarantee, we, but we were like, okay, we have, you know, maybe a chance here because we were invited to apply. And so of course we go through all of these different phases and paperwork and questions and quantifying data. That's really hard to quantify. How do you quantify cultural bonding? I don't know how you do that. We're still figuring it out, but working really hard to prepare for this grant and it was denied. And so I called up there and I asked them, I was like, hey, we're, you know, we're not new, but this is our first time proposing a grant to you all would love to get some feedback. And the woman told me, you know, your, your application was great. Your proposal was beautiful, but our board is a group of older white men who will never understand what you're doing and what that mission is all about. And to me, I'm, it was just really sobering. So I'm like, wow, as a leader who was in the space of doing this cultural work, where I'm at the mercy of people who do not or who are not connected, who have no proximity to these issues and these challenges that we're working on. And I'm expecting them to invest in what I'm doing. And so I think proximity is so important for funders to understand communities at a deeper level, the challenges, the opportunities, the assets, and really having more of a connection so they can better invest in organizations that are doing great work, even if they don't have a 30-year mission or all of the political connections that a lot of the bigger nonprofits have. Carol, will you give final thoughts and then Anaway? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Vanessa just said and Anawake, you as well. I mean, I, I think your point um, for folks to get on a board is something that every every person um, who feels called to a particular problem um, should do. I think that not only for nonprofit uh, professionals, but for people in the community as well. I think a lot of times there's there's a perception that only certain people can serve on boards and we need to we need to break that barrier too. Everybody has an opportunity to need help and be of help. And so that's the message that I think nonprofits can help spread. Um, looking at not only people who can make their give or get, but also help lend um, diversity to decision-making and really stretch us um, in the right ways. I also think nonprofits and people who support them should also look at inclusion and diversity across their entire organization, not just their board. Um, if you're hosting events where the main ticket is $450 or above, are you really being inclusive to people? I mean, you're, you're, you're setting a standard to attend an event that is not attainable for a lot of people. And so I think it's very important to really look at your fundraisers um, and your programming as well as your board relations and really 
creating a, um, a diverse and inclusive platform across the board. So my takeaway is just, you know, really be part of the solution, join boards, um, as Anoik said, and, um, you know, get involved in your community, whatever problem that calls to you and make a difference in a, in a way that's scalable. Shannon, I have taken up way too much airspace, so I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. I've got nothing else. So I'm looking forward to questions. <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to wait. Okay, Alia? At the beginning of the call, you guys mentioned something that is uh, completely frustrating for me and it has been in the past three months, uh, which is the woman underpay for nonprofit. I mean, just I just don't know what we can do. It seems like we need to like beg or proof a point or do marketing analysis to compare uh, salaries um, with the male, um, you know, in, in the nonprofit sector. Um, it just is it's insane, the difference. And um, so I think that my, my question is because this group of powerful women, what is it that we're doing? What can we do to... I mean, not make it so difficult to prove a point or to beg for getting equal pay. So we probably all have an answer to this, but I'll dive in. Um, I had actually never experienced this problem, I'll be honest, until I came to Oklahoma because I'm lucky, right? I think tribe, the way that our organizations are in Indian country are a little different. But when I came to Oklahoma for this organization, um, I was not offered the salary that my predecessor was offered. And that was the first time I was sort of confronted with that. But I'm also, if you can't tell, I'm not, I'm not a very quiet person. Um, I think it's, it's doing our homework, right, is the first thing we have to do. We've got to dig through those 990s and we need to know exactly what's being offered. And then we have to do our own homework as well on what the competitive rate is in the state. I mean, we have to be honest about the fact that Oklahoma just pays crap across the board. And then, um, what is uh, based on our um, you know, budget, what does that say that we're going to hold? So I went to the board and said, listen, you know, I'm going to fundraise this amount. This is what I'm going to bring in. And, you know, eventually, you know, I was lucky I had somebody like Erica that was on my board and and, and folks that understood what that looked like. But Eliana, it's it's doing a lot of that. I'm currently going through it with my current CEO. We hired an attorney for her to help do a salary comparison, uh, looking at standards across the industry and what the her male counterparts were being paid to help her, her, her do that. And then you have to be, I mean, if, if we want to, we've got to go to our boards and say, we're out. You know, if you're not going to pay us, we're out. And you have to be comfortable enough to do that. Um, no bonuses, right? Bonuses suck. Like what, what colas suck. Like I just, I want a standard paycheck that reflects what I need. Um, but we're also not good. Women believe that we go into this in a space of service and we have to change that mindset. You know, this is a job at the end of the day, I've got to feed my family and I love what I do, but we have to be okay with saying no. And a lot of that though, is just knowing how to do the homework. We've got to dig into those nine nineties. We've got to do the market analysis and we've got to be willing to hire people to help us do that. I think that's so important. I just mentioned in the chat, the Chronicle of Philanthropy just did a big expose on a woman who left her nonprofit after, you know, turning it around. And she was making 70% of what her predecessor had made. And she finally just said, that's it. I'm gone. And Shannon, uh, Kelly Hawkins uh, had a question. Um, I didn't really have a question. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just here to absorb. We, we serve, um, 
bilingual children in, in Oklahoma City and Tulsa through clinics. And so uh, the majority of our funding comes from and how we pay our staff is by what OHCA or Oklahoma Medicaid reimburses. Um, we also know that, you know, they don't understand bilingualism. And so we face roadblock after roadblock. Um, we were for a period of time doing autism testing because it's within some of our professional scope of practice. Um, OHCA came back and said, no, we're no longer going to pay you to do that, where we have kids waiting for a diagnosis for, you know, on a list for two years to get called by the clinic the week before their appointment and say, oh, we don't have anyone that speaks Spanish, so we can't, we can't see your child. And so we have kids that are going without diagnosis and delaying care and, you know, getting them the appropriate community and, and uh, social supports and school supports that they need. And so we're throwing around the idea, do we, do we start our own not-for-profit portion of our company to try to access some funding and some resources available so that we can better support our families, but also, you know, teams in terms of being able to help with student debt assistance a little bit better and, you know, getting them those opportunities to not have to, you know, all of our therapists have master's degrees at least, and so they have considerable student debt. So trying to be able to, you know, make it easier for them make those dollars stretch as much as possible. So I'm just here to learn and listen and hopefully take in some good information so I can help kind of guide that decision-making process. Vanessa, do you want to pick up on that since you've touched on the the problems of having to be a nonprofit to access funding? Yeah, I, just reflecting on the work of open design, I think how we're trying to buffer some of that is not again, saying no and not accepting projects that are not going to fully fund the capacity needed to serve in those positions of being a planning lead or uh, design architectural lead on some of the projects we're working on. Another issue I'm seeing too, especially, I think this is an issue across the nation with Black-led organizations like mine that are working within the built environment. A lot of people like to silo us to the engagement initial work, but don't include us as thought partners in the design, the deliverable, the planning level, the higher level work. I don't even want to say higher level because the engagement is a whole beast that a lot of people don't know how to do. There's a very special and thoughtful and intentional approach you have to have working in the communities that we work with. And so it's definitely just as high and just as important as the deliverable and the design. But I noticed how people will want you to come in. Like we're constantly getting invitations from different firms saying, hey, you want to, will you come in and be an engagement partner, but not a design partner, not a um, partner with the whole entire uh, project. And so we have just been saying no. And if we're not going to be respected for our whole role holistically, then it's just not a good fit for us. And it's scary as a newer nonprofit to say no, because you're thinking, oh, well, I have another opportunity. Well, I have another chance for a funding opportunity to come in and and be able to bring in that resource for the organization that we need to keep staff on board, to keep things moving and shaking. But we cannot keep letting people pigeonhole us or we'll never be able to get out of that pattern of being treated lesser than, even though the work that we're doing is so innovative and unprecedented in the state of Oklahoma. Um, My mentor told me, she was like, you, and she's a white woman, and she told me, she's like, you as a Black woman have to stop saying yes, because you saying no helps the next Black woman after you, because you're normalizing Black women being treated with respect and being paid for what they deserve. And so that made me take on that in a complete different way. Like, I have an obligation as a woman of color to normalize 
people paying us, people treating us as equals. And the more I say yes, and the more I diminish who I am, the more I'm normalizing it for people to treat other women coming up after me the same way. And so we're disrupting all of that. It is scary. It's hard, but we have an abundance mindset and nothing has stopped. Nothing has, you know, projects keep coming locally, nationally, and we're going to keep doing the same and and moving in the way that we need to. And I think it was really important for us to learn how to say no and put that boundary up in the beginning uh, versus always saying yes, being disrespected, being mistreated and not getting what we're worthy of being paid for. Carol, Anawake, Vanessa, I think we're kind of wrapping things up. Uh, Again, final last thoughts, uh, takeaways, how to reach out to you all. Yeah, I'll start. Um, Just appreciate that we got this conversation started. We can't make a difference and make change if we don't all communicate and talk about our experiences and um, strategize about possible solutions. So appreciate the opportunity and um, just think that this was great and glad to be part of it. Um, I love nonprofits. I love the women that I have been able to raise my daughter around in nonprofits. I love the power that I get from every woman that I sit at a table with. I have learned so much from the women and it's almost all women, right? That I'm lucky to be surrounded by. And um, there's nothing I would do different than being in a nonprofit space. I feel every day, like I'm learning and giving back to the people that I feel a direct obligation to do so. It is absolutely stinky some of the times, (laughs) absolutely stinky some of the times, and it drains us. um, And uh, I have to do a lot of meditation and prayer, right, to remember that. But there is nothing I would do different at the end of any single day than do this work. And all my deets are on the Vest app. And I'm happy to take anyone to lunch or coffee and to cry and laugh. And I'm a shoulder and like, there's nothing you can say that will scare me because I've either been there, I've thought that, or I've watched somebody else go through it and hold their hand. So like all the things, um, we really need a support and circle of care in the nonprofit space in a way that is um, we that creates trust um, because of all of the reasons why we are afraid to talk to each other because you might steal my funder or you might steal my employee because we don't have enough. Um, but please reach out to any of us, I think, and hold hand and share space. We would love to do that. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also join the conversation by becoming a best member. Go to www.vester.co and apply today.